Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out and he said, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean, the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. My wife, Kirsten, and I have been watching the Netflix series, The Crown. I know many of you are as well. We are well into the third season, but late in the first season, there is an episode regarding Prime Minister Winston Churchill that's pretty, pretty fascinating, I think. Churchill is towards the end of his tenure as prime minister. You may know that, historically speaking, he brought Britain through World War II. And by the mid-50s, Parliament was wanting to honor his life, wanting to celebrate his life. And so they commissioned a modernist painter named Graham Sutherland to paint a portrait of Winston Churchill. And he did so. And this is it right here. This is Winston Churchill from 1954. And Churchill hated the portrait. Now, so if you've seen the series, this comes out really well. And it turns out pretty much everything that's in that episode was historically accurate as well. He hated it. He loathed it. Unfortunately for him, it had to be uh, put in position publicly in Parliament. It was so for a season of time before they donated the painting to Churchill and his estate. And so he brought it home to his country estate called Chartwell. And there, within a year, his wife destroyed it by fire. And so she, because she knew how much he hated it. Now, why did, why did Churchill hate that, that portrait so much? Well, let's put it back on the screen for a second. You'll see why. He's scowling. Now, here's the thing about Sutherland, that you wouldn't know this. I wouldn't have known this either. He was, because he was a realist painter, his passion was to paint without embellishment. And this painting here, this portrait of, of Churchill, Lady Churchill, his wife, said was very accurate, actually. But Winston didn't like the accuracy so much, right? And so Lady Churchill ends up putting it out of its misery, I suppose we might say, here. 
Now, why do I mention that here? Because we are beginning a series that's going to be lasting a fairly long time, through Memorial Day weekend, actually. And it's called Portrait of Jesus. And the question that I want you to be asking along with me is this. Is this an accurate reflection of who Jesus is? Because the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of whom are artists in their own sense, who are painting a portrait of who Jesus is. And what this series is doing is taking those four portraits into one, demonstrating and showing you that, yes, it is an accurate picture of who Jesus is. And I want to say this to you. I want to suggest that that we cannot follow him as disciples if we don't have an accurate picture of who he actually is. And the other thing I'll say is this, that when you get an accurate picture of Jesus, it actually allows you to get an accurate picture of yourself. It allows you to see who you are and and also who you're designed to be because there's a gap between those two. And Jesus has come to fill the gap, to bridge the gap. And so this morning, we're going to start in Mark's Gospel in chapter 1. And what we're going to see here at the outset is three things. First, Mark tells us who he is in terms of who he came, how, like, excuse me, how he came into the world, secondly, and then lastly here, why he came. But who he is, how he came into the world, and why he came. Because in understanding why he came into the world reveals more about who he is and why it is that we should follow him than anything else. So let's jump in here with the first thing, and that is who has come into the world. It's in verses 14 to 15. This is where we begin. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Twice here in these two verses, the word gospel is mentioned. It's actually also in verse 1 here in chapter 1. In fact, this is where Mark's gospel begins. He begins by saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear gospel, what do you hear? What do you think of? Good news, right? Uh, some sort of proclamation of good news has come. Maybe even think of gospel music. But did you know that the word gospel predates Christianity? It is not a Christian term originally. There's an inscription that was found regarding one of the Caesars, Augustus. And it says, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Is that not fascinating? The gospel of Caesar Augustus. In other words, this is what it means originally. The king has come. Proclamation. The king has come. And so, here's the first point. Who has come into the world? Mark tells us right here at the very outset, a king has come. But he's a king unlike any other. Here's why that's so important. Tim Keller, who was the former pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan, said something that I think is really fascinating. He says a lot of fascinating things, but this one really struck me this week. He says, the primary difference between Christianity and any religion... There's a difference between advice and news. Here's what he meant by that. All religions have this in common apart from Christianity. They offer you advice. If you want to uh, find heaven, if you want to experience enlightenment, do these things. And so there is someone, a teacher, a prophet, who comes along and says, here's the way, here's the pathway to enlightenment, here's the pathway to eternal life, and so forth. But that's not the core of Christianity. The core of Christianity is not advice. The core of Christianity is a person who doesn't give advice, per se, as much as he says, I am the news. See, Christianity, at the core of what it is, is a proclamation of news, not advice. It's a proclamation that a king 
has come into the world. Which means what? It means that if this morning you see Jesus primarily as a prophet and a teacher, you are absolutely missing Christianity. You are absolutely missing the core of the faith that if you truly want to discover who is Jesus, if you truly want to discover what is the Christian faith, you cannot simply say, I like his teachings. I think he's got some great things to say here about money, sexuality, and so forth. No, you have to discover him as a king. What do you do when you're in the, in the presence of a king? You know, in watching the series, The Crown, it really lays out, of course, the life of Queen Elizabeth, who still is reigning as a monarch 70 years later. That's pretty profound, I think. And in the series, every single time the queen enters to her room, what do people do? They, they bow. In other words, what are they doing? They, they are with their bodies. They are they're saying, I submit myself. That's what it meant to bow. It means to, I submit myself. I'm under your reign. And so what Mark is telling us is that, that we can't pick and choose what we like here from the teachings of Jesus. He has come into this world as a king. The difference between advice and saying, oh, I like the advice or not, versus a king. More on that here in a second. But I want you to see here what happens to the people that he's preaching to. Because in verses 21 and 22, it says this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The one thing I want you to see here right away is that they were expecting just another guest preacher to arrive. Now, now in the synagogue, primarily what they did have were guest preachers. The, our, our, the way that we conduct ourselves is very different from the synagogues in the ancient world. And so can you imagine just being there one day and you're just expecting another ho-hum message from the Torah? And suddenly, this guy gets up in the pulpit and he teaches in a way that you've never heard before. Jesus as king is upending the order of things. That's what I want you to see here. Jesus, and we're not told actually what he taught. But Mark's point is saying that's besides the point. <laughs> but the point here is that, that Jesus in his very presence was upending things. Jesus has come as a king into the world. Mark wants us to know that first here in the portrait. He says, you need to paint yourself a portrait of a king, not of a prophet, not of a teacher. He was a prophet. He was a teacher, but he was so much more than that, Mark is telling us, which draws me to the conclusion I want to make here in the first point, and that is, are you this morning drawn to a king? Are you drawn this morning to a king, or, or do you simply enjoy a prophet or a teacher in your life? That is the difference between whether you're a religious person or a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. You really... If, I sense that you probably already know this. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard myself or Mike preach this. But all of us have kings in our life. All of us have an authority. All of us have an emperor, we might say. Something or someone that we follow that we think will bring us life, that, who will bring us a reign of peace into our life. But here's the thing. Apart from every kingship, apart from Jesus, that kingship, that, that emperor has brought destruction rather than the flourishing of life. David Foster Wallace was an author. He has since passed. But he gave an address years ago, approximately 10 years ago, at a place called Kenyon College. I want you to hear just a segment of what he said here. Ken, excuse me, Wallace himself was not a Christian. He, we might say he was broadly spiritual. But he understood in a pretty profound way how worship works. Now listen to what he said here. 
in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I'm wondering, did you locate yourself in that list? And if it's not here, we could, we could probably just together fill in some more blanks and, and say, yep, that's me. Like, it's so easy, isn't it? I mean, money. I mean, the stock market has been going through the roof, right? And if you, if you place your, your security in that place, if you place literally your security in securities and bonds, right? especially the stocks, what might happen if that's where your security is? If it's in your talents, your achievements, if it's in your beauty, those things will fade. You will always, by the way, in your workplace, you will always find someone better at what you do. Almost as a rule, you will, there is someone out there, they may not be in your local office, but probably somewhere out there, believe me, as a pastor, I know that. There's always someone who's better at what you do than you are. Your intellect, your pride... These things fade with time. The body ages. We're no longer as fit as we used to be. You know, these, and if these are the things that we look to for our worth and significance, Jesus says they are failed kings. They are failed emperors in your life. This sets us up to hear him say, I'm the true king, which leads now to the second thing, and that is how he came as king. Two things that I want you to see this morning from Mark. Number one, he came with authority. If you look back at verse 22, at the very end of verse 22, he says, For he has taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, here's what that means. The scribes were the experts in the law. They were the experts in the Torah. They were the experts in the scriptures, in other words. Right? They, were, they were the people that, man, when you need an expert to understand what is going on here, they were the seminary professors, right? They were, uh, they were the ones doing the commentaries on the scriptures. And what the people here say is that Jesus has an authority unlike theirs. Here's the point. When I'm up here or Mike's up here or whoever it is is preaching, you have elders that are in place. And those elders in part are here to ensure that, that what you hear every Sunday is a faithful rendition of what the Scriptures say. And that's the good news, that if I go off the, off the map, so to speak, if I go off the, off the end theologically speaking, you have elders that are here in place that will will watch over the flock. That is part of what it means to be an elder, to be a shepherd of God's people. But their authority is derived from what God has given them in the church. The scriptures are replete. Paul talks about this ad nauseum, it seems, about what is an elder. And he says that their authority is given to them by Jesus. But what it says here is that Jesus is the authority. That's a king. That's a king who's an absolute monarch with true authority. You know, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount message that he preaches, he says, you've heard it said, and then fill in the blank, 
But he says, but I say unto you. What's he doing there? He's saying, you've heard this authority, but I'm telling you what it actually says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am. And so his is not a derived authority. Let me tell you why that's so important. Thomas Jefferson was a founding father, one of our former presidents, of course, and very famously, he was what's called a deist. And a deist is someone who believes that there is some sort of uh, God, uh, but that God's not involved with the world. He's sort of, uh, you know, like a, like a machine, like a watch. He wound it up, and he just let it go on its own. But he hasn't been engaged. He's not involved with the world. That's what a deist is. And Jefferson is a deist. Believed that there was a God. But, but when he came to his Bible, he determined what was true and what was not true. And so very famously, he would cut out certain sections of the Scriptures that he, he said, there's no possible way in, as a rationalist, there's no possible way the supernatural is true. And so all the miracles of Jesus, pretty much most of the Gospels, in fact, he cut out. Now what is that? That's saying, Jesus, I think you're a prophet. I think you're a teacher. I think you have good things to say. But you couldn't possibly be the Lord of my life. See, if Jesus is Lord, there's no room for exceptions. Right? If he's Lord, then you say, command me. Command me where to go. And that doesn't mean that there aren't sections of what are taught regarding sexuality, regarding money, regarding ethics. It's not to say that there aren't sections of Scripture that are, make us more uncomfortable than other areas. But if Jesus Christ is true, those things are true, and therefore they're worthy of being submitted to, or submitting to those things, submitting to him. Jesus Christ says, I have to be your ultimate authority, or I'm of no importance to you whatsoever. It's no in-between. It's an either-or is what he gives us here. And so he says, I have true authority, but listen, here's what I want you to see next. This is where I think he lowers the boom. It's in what happens next with his power. And so authority is what you have, but power is what you put on display. And so behind this great authority is great power. Look at verses 23 and 24 with what happens next. No sooner does he preach than this happens. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? It's a bit of a question there, isn't it? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We were talking about this text in, in our uh, staffing, as we always do, and, and one of our staff members said, isn't it interesting that the, the demonic world has a better awareness and grip on who Jesus is than we do? That, that in our modern world, we, we, we find it so far out there, the idea of demonic possession. And that we find it so far out there that we, we have a tendency to not even consider that. Or if we do, it's usually a movie like The Exorcist. And and one of the things we talked about was we shouldn't make too much of uh, something like demonic possession, but neither should we make too little of it as well. One of the things I want to say is this, that demonic possession is virtually or essentially the extreme version of what's true for all of us, and that is we become possessed by darkness. And literally, quite literally in this situation, a man had evidently been possessed by an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit. What is going on here? Number one, I want you to see this. This is a contest in the spiritual realm between two spirits, an unclean spirit and the Holy Spirit. And in this contest, something fascinating takes place. You know, I, as a pastor, one of the privileges I have as I preach here week in and week out is I get to learn God's Word along with you. 
And one of the things that every commentary that I looked at this week said that I'd never seen before is this, that that phrase, the Holy One of God, what is the point of that? In the ancient world, especially in the world of the occult and magic, naming things was a way to have power over them. And so when it says here, Jesus of Nazareth says, I know who you are, Holy One of God. Every commentary that said the exact same thing. And that is, this is the unclean spirit trying to get authority and power over Jesus. That may seem a little bit odd to us in our modern world, but to the ancients, that made perfect sense. This unclean spirit is trying to dominate Jesus with speech, which makes what happens next even more ironic. Look at verses 25 and 26. This is how the response is. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Like you, I, I, I love movies. Or, or like a lot of you, I should say. Some of you probably don't like movies, but I do. And, and so we've been watching as a family. We, we've, we've got some new, uh, like a sectional in our basement. And we're, we're trying to, we're going to buy some movie posters, put them up on the wall, movies that we like. And a lot of the movies that we like are involve superheroes and things like that. Just great narratives, great storylines. And, um, you know, if you think about what a superhero is. So think about Superman, for instance. Superman is a niche industry. Here's what I mean by that. Superman has certain powers that when you are in his niche, when you're in his industry, man, he's going to crush it. Literally, he will crush you, right? And, and so he can see through anything, right? He's got more physical prowess and power than any other superhero on the planet, right? And there's, of course, there's Wonder Woman. Uh, she's got the lasso of truth, right? And so if you get lassoed by her truth, look out, Truth Serum 101, right? And there's, there's Freeze, right? There's, there's the Green Lantern. Like all of these different characters, all these different superheroes, when you're in their field, look out. You cannot dominate them. But here's the thing. Superman has kryptonite. Wonder Woman, her physical prowess is very limited. All the different superheroes, as soon as you're outside their niche, you can dominate them. That's why there's a Hall of Justice. Because they need an alliance. Scott, where are you going with this? Here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus simply speaks, and he has power over everything. Jesus is not a niche superhero. If you just happen to step into his line of fire, look out. No, Jesus has the power of the cosmos. He's Lord of the cosmos. When you read these words, right, uh, where they say, uh, who is this that, that... that, that even the unclean spirit obeys. Listen to what happens in Mark chapter 4, verses 39 through 41. An episode regarding a storm on the water. Jesus is asleep. The disciples are in fear of their lives. They should be. They're about to drown. This is what happens. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still, be silent, in other words. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What does that sound like? It sounds like our text, doesn't it? That even the wind and the sea. What is Mark telling us here, both chapter 1, but then also in chapter 4? He's Lord of the cosmos. He is no small superhero by comparison. 
But the one who simply speaks, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. And he said, let there be light. And he said, let there be land. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speech. Over and over and over again, Jesus doesn't need a magic wand. Jesus doesn't need a a hidden superpower. He is speech. He is the living Word, for He is God Himself. In the beginning, God. That is ultimate power. That is ultimate. And the question is, what will he do with that power? Because don't you see, here in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, he's just getting started. But I want you to see something else. And this is going to draw us towards our close here. When Jesus says in verses 14 to 15, repent for the kingdom of God is near. I want you to hear something there. See, the Old Testament, the whole vision of God engaging, because he wasn't a deist, the whole point of God engaging the world with the kingdom was saying that, that he's come for the renewal of all things. But when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, here's what he's saying. The kingdom of God has come, yet it's still coming. There's much more ministry. There's much more life to be done here, Jesus is saying. You've only begun to see a little piece of it here. In my command of the unclean spirit, in my authority to teach, you're only beginning to see just a, just a small taste of it here. But the other part of that is this, that the kingdom of God is near, but it's not yet here. Why do we know that? Because Jesus Christ was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus Christ was the suffering servant who, who had to go through putting away his power, putting away that so that he might take on our sin, which now leads us to the last thing. Why is it that Jesus Christ has come as king? Why did he come with authority and power? Here's the answer. For the healing of the nations. Jesus Christ, with all of his power, with all of his authority, as the Lord of the cosmos who could cast out unclean spirits, who could calm the wind and the waves, why does he come? He comes for us. He comes, uh, more broadly speaking, for the cosmos, to heal the cosmos. You know, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is about God being in control. There was no sin, and sin enters the world, and, and the world breaks down. And then the rest of, of the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 40, How long, O Lord, how long must we wait? Isaiah 40, there's coming a Messiah who will renew all things. And then we get to Romans chapter 8, uh, that all of creation groans awaiting the fullness of redemption to come. To those who are adopted as sons and daughters, all of creation waiting in earnest expectation for the healing of the nations. But I want you to see something that's much more personal than that great cosmic truth. And that is back in verses 25 and 26. You see, it is so easy to think about verses 25 and 26, this contest between two powers, and just see the exorcism. But I don't think that's what Mark primarily wants to see. That's certainly not what I want you to see. I want you to see a person who had been possessed, who had been controlled, and Jesus Christ comes for him. The very first miracle that Mark gives us is a miracle of healing a man who had been possessed, who had been possessed by darkness. And this becomes a microcosm of the whole purpose of why Jesus Christ came for you and why he came for me. He came to heal us from being possessed by sin. And Jesus Christ does it. Why? How? By going to the cross for you and for me. Here's the point. This is how we draw to a close. How should we respond? Number one, 
We don't need to be in control because we have a God who is in control. We don't have to be the kings and queens. We don't have to be the captains of our own destiny because we have someone who gives us so much better. You see, if you had unfettered freedom in your life, what would you do with it? Well, we kind of know what we would do with it because that's how we live our lives. And what it does is it hurts other people and hurts us. It destroys other people, it destroys us. But Jesus Christ says, let me be the architect that I am, for I'm the one who's Lord of heaven and earth. God says, let me be your architect so that you might have the flourishing of life. Unfettered freedom and flourishing are not the same thing. They're two opposite things, it turns out. God says, let me be your king so that you might flourish as my subjects, that you might experience everything about what it means to be human. And so, what do we do with that? Here's what we do with that. It's something that I haven't yet said in here. You may have been wondering, why haven't I said anything about the calling of the disciples? I want you to see something that is really fascinating. In verses 14 and 15, remember what he says there. He says, repent and believe. The kingdom of God has come. Mark says, of course, Jesus is saying, I have come. Now, in the calling of these disciples, we know the story of Peter, Simon. We know the story of Andrew, the fisherman as well. And there are two more disciples that are called here. It's in verses 19 and 20. Hear it again. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Why am I pointing that out? So, it doesn't say this here, but in Mark chapter 3, Jesus Christ gives John and James a nickname. Do you know what the nickname is? The Sons of Thunder. Now, why does he call them the Sons of Thunder? Because they have a really bad issue with anger. So in Luke chapter 9, another story, they go into a village in Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were these half-breeds. They had intermixed with, with pagans, essentially. And so the Jews hated them, and the Samaritans returned the compliment. And they hated each other. And so they go into this village here and they preach the good news. And basically, the Samaritans give them the middle finger. And so if you know the passage in Luke chapter 9, James and John, very famously, they say, Hey, Jesus, you mind if we call down a little fire from heaven? Let's take this village out. Let's give them the ultimate middle finger by going nuclear on them. Right? That's, that's, that's anger out of control. It sounds a little bit like cancel culture to me today, actually. What do we do with our anger? We, we seek to destroy. Scott, what's your point? Why are you bringing this up? Jesus says, repent and believe. Now I'm going to call the sons of thunder to follow me. And then for the next three to three and a half years, they see Jesus get righteously angry in a righteous way, but filled with compassion and mercy. For it says in Luke chapter 9 that when they said, let's call down fire from heaven. Jesus says to James and John, I rebuke you. I came not to destroy, but to heal. And here's the story of James and John. James becomes the first martyr of the disciples. According to tradition, John, who is John? The apostle of love, who wrote the gospel of John. And who wrote the letters to the church, don't you see? Jesus says, repent and believe, and these disciples do. Jesus says, follow me, and it takes some time, but they do. That's your life, that's my life. Listen, I was having a conversation with two of my girls last night, Kirsten and I were, 
and we're talking about anger. And it made me think about my own life. It made me think about how I am a guy. I am a father. I am a husband. I am in process right now. There are, there are things that I'm still learning about how to respond well to my children in a way that, that demonstrates, yes, authority, that demonstrates that, that, yes, God has placed us in a position of authority over you, but in a way that calls them forth um, to life. Not to crush life, but to call them forth to life. I'm, it's still something I'm learning. Listen, I'm in process too as a disciple. Jesus told me, come and follow me. I'm the king. I command you to follow me in everything, in your parenting, in your sexuality, in your ethics, in your money. And he's doing the same thing for you too, friend. And so the portrait of Jesus here is intended to be your portrait as well. This is what it means to be a disciple. And essentially, this whole series is about discipleship. It's about learning, as I said at the very beginning here, this is where we close. It's about learning, say, if this is who Jesus is, then this is who I'm intended to be. So may we be those men and women. May we be those who go further up and further in with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that a king has come into our midst. That Jesus Christ has a has, has the, all the right power and authority to rule our lives because you went to the cross for us. You defeated death itself. You're raised to new life. You are truly the Lord of the cosmos. And one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you indeed are Lord. And so may we continue to make that proclamation. May we be about the news, not so much the advice. May we be about the proclamation. So proclaim it to our spirits this morning, individually and collectively as a church family. Remind us that we serve a king. And so into those places of our discipleship that are harder or the places where we're further behind than where we want to be, Lord, be our king. Through the power that defeated death and sin itself, rule our hearts. Reign over city church. Reign over this great city of ours. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, Savior, Redeemer. We're going to take some time now to respond to God's word, and we're going to do it first through confession. And as always, I want to give you a moment. I mean, that was a really powerful ending um, as we are.